it is impossible to rightly come together corporately to offer worship to God apart from entering through Jesus. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. You're listening to Doxology, a sermon series through seven essential psalms. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, not to the book of Psalms, but to Romans chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 11 is where we're going to kick off. And we're going to do three big things today as we kick off this new series. I've been super excited ever since our elders met back in November to kind of look through what the series uh, of studies were going to be verse by verse through the scriptures this year. And we looked at the summer, and I've been wanting for years to do a summer in the Psalms. We go verse by verse through the Bible, and instead of covering all of the Psalms um, this early into the life of our church, I at least wanted us to cover some of them, and then we'll come back and really go in depth later, maybe when we have a midweek service eventually. But uh, I've been excited about this, and today what we're going to do is three things. We're going to get an idea of what it means to uh, have a doxology, what does it mean to praise and glorify God, Uh, and then we're going to see a corporate gathering of worshipers and worship leaders. We're going to see that in the Old Testament, and then we're going to see an overview of the book of Psalms as a whole. Okay, so we have a lot of work to, to, to do today, a lot of ground to cover. So look at Romans chapter 11. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Uh, Romans chapter 11. Uh, we're also on the Bible app. You can follow the event. Starting in verse 33, here's what Paul says to the Romans. Reading from the English Standard Version, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up this new series and begin to study the incredible book, the largest book in our Bibles, the book of Psalms, we ask, Lord, that you would reveal Jesus to us, that we would see Jesus in a new light, that we would be able to um, sing and make music in our hearts, uh, knowing that the, the lyrics that we're singing are all representative of Christ and the finished work that he accomplished for us. So, Lord, we thank you that we have a privilege and honor to be here with your people today um, studying your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would illuminate this text to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us uh, this passage in Romans, the passage in 1 Chronicles, and the overview of Psalms. Lord, allow us to really dig in, to lean forward, to not yawn and fall asleep, to not let our minds wander and drift, but to truly focus. Lord, remove distractions today, we pray. 
And we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. So we thank you, Lord, for the work you're advancing here at Shoreline, for the work you're doing through Global Serve, through the work of church planting around the world. And we ask, Lord, for these fledgling church plants that are meeting in the most difficult of places, that today your word would be preached, your spirit would be at work, and, Lord, you would be exalted and glorified. And we ask that you would do a new work today in our hearts. We invite you to do that by your spirit. And all of God's people who agree said... Amen. Amen. Doxology. Doxology. It's not a word that we find in our vocabulary often. Chances are this morning you didn't say to your wife, I'm thinking of having a new doxology at church. Unless you're Micah, you're the only one who actually used the word doxology this morning. Uh, The word doxology comes from two Greek words. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. It comes from the word doxa, which means glory, and logos or logia, which means word. So you can actually define doxology as giving glory or speaking glory or declaring glory. Uh, The word glory in the Old Testament was not the word doxa in the Greek, but in the Hebrew, the word kabat. It actually means weight. It means uh, weight, but also honor and reverence and reputation and splendor and dignity. It has with it the idea of something weighty and important, and that importance is known, it's declared, it's manifested. Now, in the New Testament, the word doxa uh, came to be understood uh, more specifically as splendor or brightness or majesty or magnificence or grace or preeminence. So the idea behind weight of glory, doxa, is that we uh, take what is preeminent, what is important, what is weighty in our life, and we make it more important. We put it in center stage and say that is what takes press hard uh, to understand what that means in our culture today, to give something glory. Every time a crowd cheers for their team, every time an audience applauds a performance, whenever an early morning is spent at the gym or a late night is spent at the tavern, we're giving something glory. Uh, Whenever I drive by a donut place and I pull in and spend my money, I'm giving glory to that silly idol. And sadly, I'll just a little side note, in California, Jen and I actually went on on what's called a donut crawl. We went to several donut places in the same day. So don't judge, all right? God's my judge. Now, people right now, all over Lakewood Ranch, all over Bradenton, all over Sarasota, are currently worshiping but they're not necessarily sitting in a church gathering. You know that, right? They're worshiping all over town. So giving glory doesn't just say, mean that you're in a church service and you say the word glory. I was growing up um, in, in Atlanta, and one time I was invited by a friend to this little urban or rural church um, in the backwoods of Georgia. And apparently every time the pastor said something impactful, I, it surprised me at first. Everyone around me started kind of like at their, on their own, like popcorn, just started saying the word glory. And it actually scared me at first. I was like, oh, are you, did I, was that a bless you? I didn't know what to do, right? Does he need a tissue? Uh, and so if, if you want to do that this morning, you can. You can just say glory, all right? You can just kind of, but that's not the idea. Um, to understand giving God glory or worship, as we call it, look again at Romans 11, where we just read. Look again at this. And I want you to note starting in verse 33 of chapter 11, four important ideas. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depths, uh, or oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable 
his ways. Note with me on the screen, you can take a picture of this or jot down quickly these um, four ideas. Note with me from verses 33 through 35 that God is supremely greater than his creation and he's in need of nothing. Theologically, this is called the aseity of God. He's not in need of something. He's not bummed that heaven was there without us and he missed us and wished that we would be there. Okay, that's not the idea. We are finite. We are created. We are sin-racked beings. Whereas God is uh, an infinite, uncreated, holy, uh, supreme being. And his ways and his judgments and his will are beyond understanding. Uh, Secondly, I think we need to put the points up real quick. Um, The second one is that all things originate from God, verse 36 tells us. All things are supplied by him and all things belong to him. All things. Think about that. He says are from him. That implies authorship. All things are through him. That implies agency. And all things are to him. That implies aim. Or you could say from him is the cause, through him is the channel, and to him is the consummation. So all things originate from him, are supplied by him, belong to him. Thirdly, verse 36 gives the idea that God is the sum of all worth, all beauty, and all importance for all time. And so all things originate, all things filtrate, all things consummate in God. And that's why Paul says, so to him be all of the doxa, all of the glory forever. Amen. And then fourthly, uh, based on chapter 12, verse 1, The idea is that because of God's mercies, our reasonable response is to give him our very selves. That's the idea Paul is giving here. He's saying, hey, because God is belong, to him belongs all glory forever, then the natural, right, reasonable response is that we would offer him what we have, which is our very self. And so because everything's created by him and for him, and he receives all the glory, we should be responsive. And the reasonable response is to lay down our lives on the altar and stop allowing ourselves to fall into the conformity of the world, but be transformed as we renew our mind and understand his good and acceptable and perfect will. And Paul says all of this is is holy and acceptable to God to give him glory. Now, is that possible on your own? I'm going somewhere with this thought. Is that possible on your own from the comfort and the privacy of your own home to give him glory? I believe, yeah, to an extent, it is possible. It's certainly possible. Uh, you can be here today and give God glory by living a consistent, um, holy life privately just as much as you are publicly. That gives God glory. You can give God glory uh, by studying His Word, by praying, uh, by giving of your first fruits, by being uh, a prayer warrior. Those are all great things to give God glory on your own, behind the scenes, quietly. Men, as we love our wives, as we lead our families um, biblically, those are great ways to give God glory. Uh, Wives, as we submit to our husbands as unto Christ, even when it's difficult, that's how we can give God glory privately. Uh, Children, by honoring and obeying your parents, you can give God glory behind the scenes privately. Maybe even in other practical ways. You can pay your bills on time. You can be a, a reputable, trustworthy person of your word. You can keep your home clean. Uh, you can live with excellence. All of those things bring God glory in a semi-private way. But the true idea of giving glory to God is more than that. It's, listen, it's to make known his worth and his supremacy over all creation. It's to make it known. It's to declare it. It's to give him glory and to declare his glory. 
So we do that by declaring the gospel, by proclaiming the gospel, by rightly understanding the gospel, and yes, sometimes even singing the gospel. We come together corporately on Sunday mornings to celebrate the work of God and the worth of God in our lives as his covenant people. And if we're willing to sing a song, like we're willing to sing songs about everything. If we're willing to sing songs about our nation and flag or a boyfriend or a red solo cup, then we should be more than willing to sing to God uh, who is far above all rule and authority and all created things, right? Uh, Psalm 19 tells us that this is happening anyway. Psalm 19, you can read it later, tells us that even now, uh, day after day, night after night, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. They are giving God glory by making it known. They're, they're having a doxological expression, even now, in creation. Every day, the skies, the seas, the creatures of the earth are drumming up their doxology to an infinite, worthy creator. Uh, and so, whether you and I choose to participate in that and give God glory, the rocks in the solar system are still crying out, even when we aren't. Creation is making music, so to speak, to the glory of God. And so I kind of wanted to set that up and give us that idea, uh, that that's what, where this idea of doxology comes from. So when did, when did the people of God begin to declare God's goodness and sing together? When did this happen? When was not necessarily the first mention of it, but when was a collection of God's people coming together out of the privacy of their own homes to meet with the collection of God's people and begin to formally worship and sing and declare God's goodness together. Uh, we're going to look at it in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 16. The only hint I'm going to give you is that it's right ahead of 2 Chronicles. That's all you get. 1 Chronicles 16. Now, as you're turning there, little backstory. King David has now been anointed as the king. Saul, the prior king, was disobedient. He's now dead. David's now on the throne. The Philistines, if you turn it back two chapters, have been defeated. And the ark of God has been recovered, which is very important in the life of Israel. There's not yet a temple built because David was a warlord, so to speak. So Solomon, his son, would be the one who builds the temple. But David, in the meantime, has taken the time to organize people, specifically from the tribe of Levi, to be musicians and singers and ministers to lead the people uh, in corporate worship. Now, let's read what happens. Look at 1 Chronicles 16, and we're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to read this chapter, but we'll break it up a little bit. So look at verse 1. It says, And they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. There's a lot in that, a lot that went into that in detail. We, don't, we won't go into that. Verse 2, And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. We're not going to do that today. Thank you for being here today. We're not going to distribute uh, all of that to you today. But verse 4, then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord. Notice this, to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and here we go, we're going to name some of these names, and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemaramoth, that's wrong, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliah, Beniah, Obed-Edom, and Jeel, who were to play harps and lyres. 
Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehazel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that Thanksgiving, or that Thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And then we get the song. Now, I'm not going to read it. I want you to read it later, starting in verse 8, an incredible psalm that you can read through, starting in verse 8, and it goes all the way to verse 36. Look at verse uh, 36, the uh, second part. It says, Then all the people said after they sang the song, Amen, and they praised the Lord. Verse 37. So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Look, look at this. To minister regularly before the ark as each day required. And also Obed-Edom and his 68 brothers, he had a big family, while Obed-Edom, the son of Jeduthun, and Hosea were to be gatekeepers. And he left Zadok, the priest, and his brothers, the priests, before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offerings regularly, morning and evening, to do all that is written in the law of the Lord that he commanded Israel. Uh, look at verse 41. With them were Heman and Jeduthun and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Heman and Jeduthun had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song. The sons of Jeduthun were appointed to the gate. And then verse 43, all the people departed each to his house and David went home to bless his household. Now there's a lot there, but I thought this is an awesome picture of David corporately gathering the people of God together and then assigning a worship team. This is awesome. Note with me, David leaves Asaph and his worship team there to perform this task on the daily. There's people assigned to the gates. There's people assigned to the sacrifices, even specific instruments. Like you're in charge of this instrument. I mean, did you guys catch this? He has a guy named He-Man, and apparently He-Man is good on the drums. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. It makes sense to me. Uh, but I think this is interesting uh, that as they gather, as David gathers the people together, uh, I think we have some things that we can learn. In fact, I want to ask and answer three important questions today about corporate worship. And this is before we even get into the study of Psalms. I'm going to take opportunity today uh, to just look at this. So three questions. First, who should lead worship? Secondly, what do we sing when we're actually going to sing songs, and then how do we worship, okay? I'm just going to spend a minute on these, uh, and from this text and from some other verses, kind of get an idea. So who should lead? Who should lead worship? I want you to jot this down. Number one, corporate worship should be organized, assembled, and led by skilled musicians who live a life of integrity. David gathers these people together, and there's this sense of skill and specificity. He puts certain people on certain instruments. In Psalm 78, 72, uh, we read this, with upright heart, this is about David, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Do you see the two things there? Uh, if we neglect either one of those, we get in trouble. The two things include an upright heart and a skillful hand. A skilled musician who isn't living with an upright heart is not a worship leader. Uh, they are a performer. But you can have the most upright heart in the world, but you're not skilled. Uh, and and that, that can be difficult, right? You, you have to, as a worship leader, 
as a, as a musician, you have to know music. You have to understand how to read notes. You got to know timing. You got to know cadence. You have to know feel and generally have the ability to play an instrument or know if you're on pitch. So if you're singing on a Sunday morning and your singing invokes people in front of you to do the shameless shuffle where they're just moving away so that they can actually hear and sing along in tune, you probably should not sign up to be on the worship team. Uh, keep your day job. Don't seek a future ministry as a worship leader. Uh, now, there's no idea in the text in First Chronicles that David just had everyone singing on their own. Everyone just show up and just sing on your own. There's an element of corporate worship and singing, but there's still leadership. Uh, those who were qualified were chosen and expressly named to lead God's people. Some of them played different instruments. Some of them directed different areas, but there was order and skill. And I love that about our worship team here at Shoreline, by the way. I love what Pastor Micah is doing with our team to develop uh, and disciple our crew. We have an amazingly gifted group of true worshipers, and behind the scenes, they live holy, dedicated lives, glorifying God for 167 hours every week so that the one hour or so that we gather together, uh, it's consistent and not much more awesome. So love those guys. Now, when we worship with God's people corporately, what do we sing? What do we actually sing? This is, this is a, a, a true question. Am I the only one who's struggled with worship song lyrics lately? Am I the only one? If I am, that's fine. But this is, this is a struggle. What are good songs? Where are the good songs at? So second point, I want you to jot this down. Corporate worship, and this is an important point, it includes singing the word of God and the truth about God expressed in creative ways from the heart, okay? Uh, let me demonstrate that to you from, I basically got that from Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And then he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Both here in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 5, Paul affirms that we are to have psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, don't overthink those categories. Sometimes we can overthink those. The idea of psalms there is that the actual psalms, uh, the book of psalms. Uh, the idea of hymns is actually interesting because in Paul's day, a hymn was something that you sang as a Roman about a, uh, an idol, a false god. You would sing of your hero. That was a hymn. And so the idea is that the early church took some of the songs or the phrases of the culture, like Caesar is Lord, and they changed it to Jesus is Lord. In fact, uh, in AD 112, there was a governor in Bithynia, and he reached out to the emperor, and he said, how do I handle the number of rising, uh, the rising number of Christians in my community and in the empire? And as he wrote to the emperor, he mentioned the Christians are singing hymns to Christ as to a god. Right, the whole idea was even confusing to the Romans. How are they taking our songs and turning songs to heroes about a guy who was crucified? We don't understand it, and that didn't make any sense. Uh, but Paul seemed to be encouraging the church uh, to sing these great songs. And then he says spiritual songs. Uh, and this is kind of a generic Greek word meaning all different kinds of songs. The idea is that we're singing in variety of ways. But look at this point again. Corporate worship includes singing the Word of God and the truth uh, about God expressed in creative ways from the heart. That's what we're to sing. So some people say, well, can we take secular songs 
and just sing those. And don't change the lyrics, just sing those. Can we sing them in church? Is that okay? Uh, I want to kind of answer that question. Uh, some have said, should we just get rid of all the instruments and just read Scripture in, in a high voice? Is that, is that singing? Is that worship? Well, I, I think that we need to look at this triangle for a minute based on Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Can we put that up? True worship, as we just said, has the truth of God that we're singing with creativity from the heart. You guys follow me? Now, if we lose one of those, then we have something that's not biblical, something that's off. For example, what if we just took, help me out here, Michael, what if we just took truth away? Okay, so now we're singing creative songs from the heart, but it's false worship. It's heretical, okay? Now, I wonder how many worship songs, modern worship songs, are attempting to communicate something new about God, but they bend the truth or they change the definition of words to try and express something that just simply isn't true, okay? We have to be careful that we don't remove truth, but... Also, okay, we have to have gratitude in our hearts. We're not mouthing words on a page or a screen like actors reciting our lines. Have you ever felt like that? Like and you're not even engaged in the words. You're just kind of, I'm just reading the words of this page, and it's, it's dead. There's nothing there. Jesus said of the Pharisees, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. May it never be said of us at Shoreline that our lungs are warm, but our lips are... Uh, our lungs are warm, but our hearts are cold. Okay, that's what we call lip service worship. And, and that's not true worship. But look, we can't remove the creativity either. So let's just get rid of all instruments and let's just chant out loud. Actually, that's probably coming back nowadays. But uh, the truth of God from the heart with no creativity, we would call that bland worship. How does our culture find new and expressive ways to sing about dumb things? Have you ever thought about that? Like, we of all people have the most to sing about. We have some incredible things to sing about. So don't be scared to be creative as we sing. The Bible's not scared. In the Psalms, God is likened to a shepherd, to a king, to a warrior. Uh, he's known as father, teacher, judge, and more. Uh, we learn in the Bible that we hide in the shelter of his wings, Right? People today would be like, hey, that's getting a little too creative. What do you mean God has wings? Right? As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after him. See, God is a creator. He's creative. And so we shouldn't shrink back from being creative. He actually invented the musical scale. Right? So we can be creative within it. And there's variety. And I think it's awesome that, that some expressions of the church have taken um, a creative um, ability to um, advance the gospel through specific creative work. So let's not let our worship become bland. Let's not just say, well, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen. That was a new song we just wrote. You guys want to sing it again? No, let's be creative. Yes, he's risen. And let's find ways uh, to uh, have that from the heart rooted in truth. Now, that's, that's what we're to sing, and uh, I want to encourage you, uh, Pastor Micah and I, uh, not this week, but starting the week after, uh, every Wednesday we're going to be encouraging our church with different songs. We're going to be doing videos, real short videos, just talking about new songs that we encourage you to sing, and maybe you're like, I need to find a new worship song. We'll be encouraging you with that. Now, our third question here is, how do we worship? How do we worship? And I want to answer that a little uniquely. Number three, corporate worship is only possible through the person of Jesus. 
You thought, no, I thought you were going to answer, how do we worship? Like, do I lift my hands this way, this way, this way? How do I do it? No, the idea here is even though David was directing Israel to worship Yahweh, listen, this is Old Covenant. Their truest expression of worship was not fully realized until the incarnation and ultimately the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us on the screen, Hebrews 13, that he says, through him then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for with such sacrifices, they are pleasing to God. In other words, Jesus is the door. He's the way that we're able to worship is through Jesus. I'm going to say something important. It is impossible to rightly come together corporately to offer worship to God apart from entering through Jesus. Amen? It is impossible. So you may be here today and you are separate from Christ. You don't have a relationship with Christ. Then you have not fully come into the place of worshiping the Father. You are not in right relationship with the Father because the only way to the Father is through the Son. The writer of Hebrews says that it's through him that we continually offer a sacrifice of praise. So if you don't know Jesus today, you can invoke his name all you want, but you're not a true worshiper of God if you don't enter through the door. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the way. And that means the path to heaven, the path to God, is not a multiple access path with multiple roads leading there. The way is narrow, and the entrance is isolated to one door, and Jesus is that door. And I implore you, because of all eternity standing before you, and an eternity apart from God in hell, that you would receive Christ, that you would repent of your sin and trust Christ for your salvation. So, that's a picture of doxology. That's a picture of corporate worship that kind of sets the stage for the study of the book of Psalms. You guys have been good. Let's look at the book of Psalms. Um, now, why are Psalms so important to giving glory to God? Why are Psalms so important? One person said this on the screen. Here's a quote. He said, after theology, I give the highest place and greatest honor to music. Who in the world said that? Well, it was none other than the great reformer, Martin Luther. Martin Luther went on to say this about music. He said, the devil takes flight at the sound of music just as he does at the words of theology. And for this reason, the prophets always combine theology and music, the teaching of truth and the chanting of psalms and hymns. Psalms, the book of Psalms, is the largest book in our Bibles but it's more than that. Not only is it an important book just based on sheer size, but Athanasius called Psalms the epitome of the whole scriptures. Uh, the Bishop of Caesarea, Basil, called it the compendium of all theology. Uh, the Psalms have been called just alone a little Bible in the summary of the entire Old Testament. Uh, this is an important book. Even Jesus quoted the Psalms and referenced them moments after the resurrection in Luke 24. In Luke 24, he said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, here it is, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is in the book of Psalms. 
The Psalms are different than much of our literature in our Bibles. As you open up the book of Psalms, you realize these are not letters. These are not, it's not history. It's not doctrine, though they certainly contain doctrinal truths and historical realities. No, these are poems and prayers written to God, written about God, and yet originally they were intended to be sung. Some people, including me, consider them to be the hymn book of the people of God. The Psalms declare the worth and the worship of a holy and set-apart God. They allow us to give Him glory by arranging the attributes of God and the history of God's faithfulness to His people, and even those moments, as Pastor Micah said earlier, of desperation. They remind us that we can call on a God who's faithful. And these Psalms were meant to be sung to God, but often the psalmist is is kind of re- re- reminding himself, hey, don't forget who God is. Uh, lyrically, he's reminding himself who God is, thus who he is, and where true meaning and value come from. Now, I want you to think for a minute, if you were marooned on a desert island, and you had only one book of the Bible to bring with you, you could only bring one with you, and I don't know why that's a rule, but you can only bring one book of the Bible with you, and then you were lost on this uh, desert island, most of us would pick the book of Romans. But if we had a second chance, we would pick um, the Psalms if push came to shove. You'd also ask for a flare and a GPS cell phone and stake. But you guys get what I'm saying, right? So for the next nine weeks, we're going to be diving into the book of Psalms. And uh, a few years ago, I decided to read through all the Psalms on a consistent basis every month. And I just want to share this with you. I, I um, uh, whatever day of the month it was, I would read that psalm. So on the first of the month, July 1st, I would read Psalm 1, and then I would add 30. So I'd read Psalm 31, and then I'd add 30 more, Psalm 61. So on the first, you read Psalm 1, 31, 61, 91, 121. And then you do that on the second, the third. So I was doing that consistently, and then when you get to Psalm 119, you just save that for months that have 31 days, and then you're good to go because that's a long psalm. Uh, and what happened when I did that, did that for a few months, what happened surprised me that year. What ended up happening is my understanding personally of worship, of God's sovereignty in my life. In fact, my view of all of life began to shift biblically. And that year was a year I began to mature in ways that I hadn't in years prior. I remember going through significant trials and, and, tr- and struggles, and yet the five psalms of that day, every single day, were connected to one another in some thematic way that God used to greatly encourage me. See, even now, songs are being broken into. Awesome, thank you. Awesome. Our live stream just played back for us to listen to. That's great. So I'm excited for us to study uh, eight essential psalms. Uh, we're going to narrow 150 songs to eight. And these are, um, these are going to be very important. Now, it's hard to do that. It's hard to take 150 songs and narrow them down to eight. Pastor Micah gets to do that every week, narrows it down to five. Um, so this morning, I want to give us a quick overview. And then next week, we're going to study Psalm 1, okay? Uh, so whenever we open a, a book of the Bible, we want to ask the big five questions about that book of the Bible. And the questions are who, when, where, what, and so what, okay? So let's do that together. Let's start with the who. I want you to jot some notes down. Who wrote the Psalms? Go ahead and turn to uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 with me. Turn there to Psalms. 
It's always good to know who wrote what books we're reading. Remember, these are songs, and who wrote them? Over half of the Psalms are written by David, but David's not the only one who wrote Psalms. About 50 of them are totally anonymous, and we're not sure who wrote them. There's no name. Uh, But we do have some other writers on the screen. We have Asaph. Asaph, again, was that main worship leader in Israel. He wrote 12 songs. Then we have King Solomon, the son of King David. So dad taught him a a little bit. He wrote two. Uh, A guy named Ethan the Ezraite, because if you're going to be an Ezraite, you know, you might as well announce it. Ethan the Ezraite wrote uh, Psalm 89. Remember He-Man? He-Man was also an Ezraite, and he wrote Psalm 88. Um, Jeduthun wrote three psalms, uh, and a group known as the Sons of Korah, they wrote a bunch of psalms, and even Moses was attributed as composing Psalm 90. So that's the who, a lot of different writers, a lot of anonymous writers. Many of them may have been David, but we're not sure. What about the when? When were the psalms written? Uh, Well, if we've got this many contributors, the psalms were written during the entire span of the people of Israel. If Moses wrote a psalm, that means from the Exodus uh, all the way to when they were exiled in Babylon, which we just read about in Habakkuk. So we're talking about a thousand years from 1500 BC to 450 BC, from Moses to Ezra. Can you imagine listening to a playlist right now that went back to AD 900, right? That's, That's what we're doing with the psalms, a thousand year playlist. That's when they were written. Now, where were they written? Well, That's not as important, even though there are some psalms where David says, I just wrote this in the cave of Adullam when I was fleeing from Saul. So that's kind of important. But the overall idea when we say when or where uh, is where does this book fit into our canon? How does this book fit into our canon? Well, the Jews called the first five books of the Bible written by Moses the Pentateuch. Uh, This is known as the law. And they would sometimes distinguish the prophets as all of the major and minor prophets and all the historical books thrown in. And then they would call the Psalms all of the poetic literature, including Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. They would just call all of that the Psalms sometimes. So it's important to remember when we look through these that we are exegeting song lyrics that were inspired by God as we unpack this. A very important book in our canon of Scripture. I can't imagine the Bible without the book of Psalms. Uh, Now the what. What is the Psalms all about? Well, we kind of already know it's a hymn book, it's a song book. Um, The name for Psalms in the Hebrew Bible is Tehillim, which means praise. And our English word Psalms, which begins with a P, thanks for that, uh, comes from the Greek Greek word Psalmao, which is where the P comes from. And it originally meant a song or a poem that was sung with an instrumental accompaniment. Um, By the time of the New Testament, the word just meant to sing a hymn or to celebrate the praise of God in song. Now, a lot of people don't realize there's actually five different books in the book of Psalms. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Five different books. Uh, There is book one, Psalm 1 through 41. Book two, we reference Psalm 42 today through 72. Book three starts at Psalm 73. Book four at Psalm 90. And book five is very large from Psalm 107 to 150. Now, there's a bunch of different types of psalms, but it it really depends on which one you're reading and who's writing it. Depends on on the psalm. Some of them are very short and joyful. Some of them are longer. Some of them seem to be down. I want to show you 
what type of psalms there are, and this is an outline for our series, okay? So this is going to be the eight different types of psalms that we are going to be looking at. Uh, We have hand-selected the psalms that we're going to be studying so that we cover one of these at least in our series, all right? So we're going to look next week at Psalm 1, which is a picture of a wisdom psalm. And that's wisdom for the singer to live for God. How do I live for God? We're going to sing about how to do that. We're going to learn messianic uh, psalms, which is for the singer to see the Messiah. We're going to look at lament, uh, songs of lament or prayer. And this is a song where you're asking God to intervene on behalf of you as a singer. Many of us know what those songs are like. There's penitent songs. These are songs meant to sing as we ask God to forgive our sin. And then there's a very interesting group of psalms called imprecatory psalms. These are very interesting. They seem to be harsh, but these are asking for God to defeat the enemy of the singer. And these are very honest and raw songs. God, I pray that you would just destroy my enemy. It's very heavy. I would not encourage you to pray that necessarily all the time. Uh, Then we have songs of praise for God to be exalted by the singer and songs of thanksgiving for God to be thanked by the singer. Probably didn't know there was that many different types of songs in the book. And then for our last study, a pastor friend of mine, local preacher named Pastor Dan Sardinas, he's going to come and he, I joked with him, I said, hey, I'm going to be out of town in September. I need you to teach a short passage, Psalm 119. <laughs> so he said, well, the church will be there till Sunday night at like 10 at night. I said, great. So he's going to come and teach Psalm 119, which is all about the Word of God. Lots of different types of songs for lots of different places in our lives. And that brings us to our application. So what? Why are we studying psalms at Shoreline Church in 2019? Let me quote to you two different quotes. First, John Calvin said, I may truly call this book an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For no one can feel a movement of the spirit which is not reflected in this mirror. All the sorrows, troubles, fears, doubts, hopes, pains, perplexities, and stormy outbreaks by which the hearts of men are tossed have been depicted here to the very life. See, the Psalms capture the human experience. You can't say church isn't relevant. The Bible's not relevant. No, it's very relevant. The Bible speaks to the human condition, to the plight that we're in, to our sin, to our depravity, to our separatedness from God. To our, to our very need of a Savior, uh, to the reality of despair and the reality of hope. We learn that from the Psalms. Another quote, one person said, Psalms are the music of the heart, sometimes plaintive and sad, sometimes joyous and jubilant, sometimes full of darkness and anguish, sometimes tranquil and happy. The music of David's soul preserved by the Spirit, that hearing it, we may feel encouraged to draw nigh to God. Why are we going to give a sweeping study of this book? Because this is the hymn book of Israel, and this gives us an anticipation of Jesus. As we study these psalms, we're going to see Jesus in a way maybe we haven't seen before through the melody of the Psalter. And so as we close, I want to invite our worship team forward, and uh, I'm going to close by reading uh, something insightful from the Gospel Transformation Study Bible. So go ahead and close your Bibles. I'm just going to read this little section. I thought this was awesome. Get settled and listen to this. Gospel Transformation Study Bible says, A full understanding of the Christ focus of the Psalms must understand what these 150 poems are. Namely, they're the heart cries of God's covenant people. They cry to Him for forgiveness, 
They cry to him out of lament, with praise, with thanksgiving, to express confidence, and to recount the merciful dealings of God with his people throughout Israel's history. In all these ways, we see the heart of God's people laid bare before him in song. Yet as believers on this side of the first coming of Christ, we must understand that Christ fulfilled all such cries to God. Jesus is God's definitive answer to the cries of his people. Jesus answers or provides the forgiveness cried out for. Jesus underwent the ultimate lament, crying out as he was forsaken by the Father on the cross so that we need not lament separation from God. Jesus' substitutionary work gives us supreme reason to praise God and to thank him. Jesus perfectly lived out God's law so that we lawbreakers can be exonerated freely and then changed from the inside out so that we can delight in God's law truly. Looking to Jesus, we have full cause for confidence in God. For if God did not spare his own son, what can we ever possibly lack? Jesus is himself, the fulfillment of all God's ways with his people in our space and time history. And then it concludes saying this, reading the Psalms, mindful of Jesus, is not just a clever way to read this book of the Bible, nor is it one way to do so among others. It is the way. A gospel lens to read the Psalms is how Jesus himself teaches us to read them. So as you read this portion of God's word, make these prayers to God your own and consider the ways that these Psalms are good news to us, expressing the full range of our emotions and ultimately bringing our minds to rest on the finished work of Christ on behalf of sinners. See, church, I believe that corporate worship and personal praise are so important. I believe we literally exist to give God glory. What is the chief aim of man? It's to, it's to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. That's why we exist. It's to bring him glory. So we should lift our voices. We should lift our hands. We should clap in unison. We should bow down. We should sing joyfully, triumphantly. We should declare the worth and wonder of our great God and the glory of his grace expressed to us in Jesus. I am so looking forward to this study and I hope you guys are as well. My prayer is that we would, as we've talked about this year, run with endurance. We'd be able to do that, not segregating like one part of our life saying, well, that's my spiritual life, but this is my emotional life. And this is my physical. I know that we would holistically, as a complete man and woman, surrender our full life to the Lord. We'd be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. So I'm excited about the study. I hope you are as well. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Lord, I want to pray that prayer that the psalmist prayed, as the deer pants for water, so we pant for you, we long for you. And we ask, Lord, today that you would be the, the centerpiece of our songs. You would be the chorus that we sing. You would be the one that we look to. We thank you for Jesus and the finished work that he accomplished for us. And Lord, we pray as we continue this service in song that we would not just express our worship louder or with more exuberance just in a, in a corporate gathering, though that is important, that Lord, we would live our lives to the glory of God, that as we leave here today, we'd continue 
to declare the praises of your glorious grace. We love you. We thank you. We worship you. We praise the name that is above every name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.